0: Thank you, right? Are you suggesting that someone's trying to make a real-life sequel? STAT 2? Who'd want to do that? Sequels suck. Two in the box! Ready to go!
1: We be fast (laughs) and they be slow! Wow! A second Super Saiyan? Second in order, perhaps, but by no means in stature. Your fight is with me now!
0: I'll have my revenge and Deathstalker 2.
1: Man, I can't fucking believe this. Another basement, another elevator. The same shit happened to the same guy twice. Oh, please, please. By definition alone, they're your films. The future starts this spring in March with Friday the 13th, a new beginning.
0: Severe trauma at age 12. <laughs> Brutal self-defense murder of a psychopathic
1: killer. If Jason still haunts you,
0: you're not alone. You'll find we're very different from the state institution. We don't have any guards here. Nobody's going to tell you what you can do or what you can't do.
1: You think a joke? Stop it, What you're really doing here, Tommy, is preparing yourself to re-enter society and start a new life.
0: Boy, they've given him every therapy they can think of. It's a wonder his mind isn't fried with all the drugs they've given him. They say here that his violent outbursts have subsided. That he's well on his way to a complete recovery. Friday the 13th, a new beginning. Hey, again, everyone. This is your host, Chris at Inside the Sequel, the podcast where we talk about sequel films. Uh, You know what this is. This is the home for sequel movies that don't get enough love. They don't get enough attention and maybe people forget or don't know that they exist. So we bring them to light here and we just kind of champion them or, you know, just acknowledge them. And uh, we want to thank you for tuning in again. If you're new for the first time, consider following the podcast. Um, You can find us at anywhere you find uh, your podcast streamings. Um, if you're tuning in again, I hope you listened and enjoyed our last episode where we talked about 1985's Howling 2 with Doug McCambridge from Good Times, Great Movies. But uh, I am very excited for today's episode because we have uh, first-time guest. Um, he is a published author. He was a uh, writer for Chud.com. I don't know if you still are, but uh, he was also That's in the while. special- <laughs> but he's also been in the special features for Resident Evil from 2002, uh, playing the Living Dead um, featurette, which uh, I'm excited to talk about with him. Uh, I have Mark Wheaton uh, here. Mark, how are you?
1: Very well. How are you? Thanks for having me on the podcast,
0: dude. I am so good. I'm I'm excited. I'm I'm happy to have you on. Uh, we, we finished our first year on this podcast. If you told me a year ago I'd have you on here, I would have thought, no way in hell. That would have been crazy. Um, but no, I'm happy to have you, man. Um, what, uh, how, how are you doing? What have you been up to?
1: You know, I just type all day. And <laughs> sometimes somebody sends me a check and sometimes they don't. And then I take my kids to school. And that is literally the whole cycle of my life. So a literal
0: dream of film fans right now. <laughs> this is
1: true. It just, it, you, the the worst days are where you grow You wake up and you don't know what you're working on that day. And I have, and I've managed to reduce those to almost zero. So every day I'm like, Oh yeah, I have to type this thing today. So right. that's, that's, that's all you can hope for as a writer. You know, you got something to fill the pages with that day.
0: Right. And uh, I'll just get it out of the way now because, uh I've been a big fan of yours since when I I was like 13 years old when I watched Resident Evil. I loved playing the video games. You were in that special feature and you talked about some classic films and you were just really into the history of zombie films. And I was just absolutely like enamored by that because I was such a movie nerd growing up and uh, you really turned me on to some horror movies. And I always remember that special feature.
1: Oh, great. Yeah. There was um, Jeff Schwartz was, the guy who makes all those, I was on like that one, like Bulletproof Monk. He was one of those guys who'd email you and be like, I'm doing this stuff for Resident Evil. I know you were like covering it for Fangoria. Can you give me like an hour? And you'd be like, yeah, sure. And now he's like this Peabody Emmy award-winning documentary filmmaker, (laughs) like pumping movies onto HBO all the time. But he still, he was out there making all the special, back when DVDs had those docs. So Jeff Schwartz.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't even know that. That's awesome.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he's... Back in the days of special edition DVDs, there was like five main producers who'd go out there and just make documentaries for a hundred different movies like a month. So, yeah. Ah, Dude,
0: you remember like those awesome DVD special features? You don't get those too much on like Blu-rays anymore unless you spend it on a boutique label.
1: I miss the really great commentaries. Like when... I miss Anchor Bay when Bill Lustig was there Mm. and he was like, I visited them for Fango once and he was just like, you have to see this. And he played like, they were doing some special edition of some Italian crime film, like Revolver or something. And he was playing the score. It was like an old Ennio Morricone score. You've never seen somebody so excited about getting to release something that like 400 people were waiting for. And that enthusiasm from the director of Maniac was so infectious and going to Anger Bay was always like such a treat because he was like, he was a kid in a candy store of his own making. So uh, those were good times back then
0: yeah man i would say like the like some of my like the resident evil special feature for the first resident evil is like my favorite one the next one i would put up there would be uh the friday not friday the 13th the uh, nightmare on elm street um one special feature and um yeah. just for all those on the dvd and then oddly enough i would probably say it was really scott's 1979 um like when it came out 2003 the dvd release of that and his commentary was terrific on that and cool. um it's like a staple all the time in every re-release of Alien. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I love bonus features. Like, I, I don't want to sound snobby. I'm not like one of those Criterion <laughs> buyers who's like, I just need to see what's on the supplements and Push-Up right. Glasses, you know? And, and some of those things, you like just kind of like, you know, live in your, uh, your brain rent-free, you know?
1: Yeah, the commentary to, what is it? Um, what is the schoderberg uh, The Limey, where basically the whole commentary is the screenwriter Cursing out Soderbergh, being like, "Why didn't you make the movie I wrote?" And Soderbergh's like, "Yeah, yeah, I'll try better next time." And like, you just have Jim Wilson there being like, "Ah, this was better on the page." And Soderbergh's just kind of like, "I don't even, I, I, I don't even know what to tell you." And I had a friend—I'm not going to say their names—but uh. I heard a commentary the people I worked with made, and one guy's like drinking away and drinking away and drinking away, making fun of the director's trying so hard to give his horror film a good commentary and the screenwriters and he kept being like this was an homage to this and this was an homage to this (laughs) and the screenwriter who's very smart took a drink and says yeah we had to do reshoots because the director saw a few more movies to homage to and you just hear the producers being like shut up and you can tell they edited it out but they were so furious at him for like just trashing on the commentary the director in the film and i was like that's that's good work that day
0: oh, so that's awesome that's like me going on a podcast on someone else's podcast and they coming back on mine and be like oh my god you won't fucking freaking believe what happened on this podcast and then they're like hey thanks a lot for that i'm kidding <laughs> that, that doesn't happen um but i don't i hate to just keep like you know gushing but um i, I always remember when he would talk about the history of zombies because it's funny resi evil for me is one of my favorite zombies. i love that whole franchise i binged through it um and the zombie genre has become kind of coming back in the korean film i know we're talking yeah. about it today but it's coming back in korean filmmaking and that you remember that time between like 2009 to like 2015 where everything was a zombie movie or something to like zombie related but i always remember when you would talk about the bridge between white zombie i walk with a zombie you even oh, mentioned yeah. all the way bridging to nightmare or um night of the living dead and i'm just like Oh, man, like I didn't know at, at the time, but I knew now I'm looking back. I'm like, I'm just like him. Like, I'm totally like about that sweet era. You know, like I love Zack Snyder's, yeah. you know, Dawn of the Dead. But now watching two of those three movies, I haven't still seen White Zombie, but I did just pick it up on Kino's sale. Um, I'm totally with you. I'm like, yeah, this is this is good stuff.
1: <laughs> well, it's weird because it's it's every few decades when there's zombie movies. They become something else, and now it's this real, just apocalyptic, doomsday, pandemic kind of thing, which it absolutely wasn't when uh, Val Guest when they were doing "I Walked with a Zombie" or a "White Zombie." They were, you know, racist. They were kind of xenophobic, kind of weird, racist pieces, and it was this very different thing. And then "Night of Living Dead" comes along, and you got like actual brain eaters and you have it be a totally different metaphor. That's why when you sent the thing about what are the great sequels, I was like, Dawn of the Dead because they reinvent zombies again about consumer culture. They're just a great catch-all for using um, to make, I mean, all horror films are political, but I mean, zombie movies are just made for politics. So it's yeah. great to watch them get reinvented and reinvented and reinvented.
0: Yes, yeah, so that brings me to a good point. You're the first time guest and everyone knows Who's uh, listened to this podcast before? First time guest. I got asked, like, are you a sequel guy? Like, what are some of your five? Give me some of those sequels you stand. And I don't want to hear any slander on other sequels right now. That's for off the mic. I'm
1: trying to think. I, I actually thought about this and I'm like, my first response is all like Return of the Pink Panther because Christopher Plummer is so great in it. But then I was like, <laughs> you know, I should probably do horror ones. So I was like, Dracula's Daughter, which I really like, or Dawn Channies. It's the, one where Lon Chaney's kind of Dracula, but the daughter is like seducing all the women alone. It's like a really great, like beautifully made movie. And it was very erotic at a time that they simply didn't make movies like that. And they kind of slipped a lot of stuff. And that's a great sequel. But like my, I grew up on stuff like Evil Dead 2 and the nice. Friday Thirteenth sequels. But then, like, in college, I would see stuff like Drunken Master 2, like, and, like, all the Once Upon a Time in China sequels, um, Project A Part 2, like, all the great, the crime story, the police story movies, like, these endless franchises that Jackie Chan and Jet Li were doing, they would screen them at my college, and so I just, I might not even remember which one was which, but I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's the Once Upon a Time in China that was in the Old West, and then you know, Drunken Master 2 was the one where the mom like fights too. So it's just, (laughs) there's endlessly great sequels. So just, especially if you're a genre fan. So, yeah. yeah.
0: I think like, obviously the horror genre is the easiest to gravitate towards with the sequel movies, but the more I've been doing this podcast, the more I've expanded. Um, There's some amazing non-horror sequels that I've just either not given notice to, or like, even just like visit the franchise, you know? And um that's I mean when you bring up martial arts movies um it's kind of like candy like there's just so many different options they kind of look the same but they are different in their own way um yeah when i went through the police story i went all the way to the th- all first three um yeah. and police story three super cop is phenomenal when it yeah. comes to martial arts sequel movies and uh that's that's cool to hear that once upon a time in I don't know if you've been maybe even secretly listening to the podcast talking about Criterion movie releases right yeah. now and it's like, oh, but, you know, it's all good. <laughs> uh, but yeah, oh, Paddington
1: 2, so, there's another good sequel, Paddington 2. The safest choice. Kids. The so.
0: safest sequel movie choice. Everyone loves um Paddington oh, films.
1: yeah, And Star Trek 2, that's probably another safe choice but then you go super safe like godfather 2 and empire strikes back and all that crap so
0: oh okay um, so we talk about sequel movies that don't get enough love or attention we've covered I know, I was like, you're right. too.
1: paddington 2 gets plenty of love you're absolutely <laughs> right
0: so it's like yeah i mean next i mean starting next year we're going to be doing things like cats versus dogs Two, the revenge of kitty galore and garfield a tale of two kitties you know it's like that kind of we're, we're, we're heading that way in this podcast
1: that's excellent. Um, it's sad because that's from my era of screenwriting, and I'm like, I know all of those people. I, I remember how hard fought it was for the the producers of Final Destination, Warren Giant and Craig Perry, to make Cats and Dogs too up and. <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny when you're on the other side and you're just like, it's like, oh yeah, Boogeyman too, and I'm like, yeah, I was attached to that for a while. There's the whole other side of like the sequel universe, like oh yeah, I remember when they were rebooting The Grudge and like, yeah, yeah, I pitched a fire thing on it. They, they talked to 50 bop. It's a very, it's weird being on the inside of the endless sequels that are never made but are just endlessly developed and it just like, wow, they're still trying to milk just a little more out of
0: some franchise. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. I, yeah, they're doing a new business. Final Destination film too. It got announced.
1: I'm yeah, excited. it is. They were trying to make. Um, I don't know if I should. Uh, I think they were trying to make one. Period. Final Destination, sixteen sixty six, for a while. But now it's the the woman's writing it. It's a new. They're starting the whole franchise over again. So.
0: Yeah, I That'll think it's just fun. gonna be called Final Destination. Like every new remakes, reboot movie, like the new Scream is just called Scream.
1: Yeah, but on the paperwork, it's funny because the the Friday Thirteenth I worked on. On the paperwork, it says Friday the 13th, part 12. But on the poster, it says Friday the 13th. So it just you get that, but it's filed and contracted and like all spelled out as and with the Writers Guild as Friday the 13th, part 12. So who knows what they actually say on the at New Line on the document. So.
0: Uh, I don't know. This is why I had you on just so I can get like my my sneaky links of like what's going on in Hollywood right now. Rumor has it they're going to do a Hellfest 2, which I'm excited for. But then they're going to do a Malignant 2, and now I'm all mad. So,
1: oh, I had no idea. Oh my god. Oh well. No. These
0: are totally made up things. I just wanted to get a reaction to the comments for that one.
1: <laughs> it's funny because I remember I was I was working at Ghost House on Messengers, and I got put right onto Boogeyman too. And yeah, because Boogeyman was an accidental hit. And yep. I I just, it's funny. I just really liked hanging out with Rob Tappert as like an evil dead guy. You yeah. go out for like lunch with Tappert and he just tell you amazing stories. It was really fun to hang out with him. And he's like, what about Boogeyman too? I'm like, you know, why not? And so <laughs> I signed on and we signed the contract. And we were doing it. But then they realized there wasn't enough interest like Mandate and Lionsgate whoever was involved in it was like we can't go theatrical with it so you're fired and we're going to do a straight video one instead I'm like (laughs) I think we like high-fived and went and pitched some tv show or something but it was just (laughs) you're constantly in the sequel universe and then when messengers 2 was coming around they were like hey we're gonna do messengers 2 but we're gonna use Todd's old script and change the names and we're going to just use that as a prequel script and i was like that's amazing I, I think todd and i like emailed really like, they're going to just use your script and they're going to make a whole movie out of a they're going to make a sequel out of one of the 15 drafts for messengers that's insane and it just happened and that's i don't know that's all so, i good <laughs> so
0: that is a crazy now, thing, none now of
1: it, but, you know that's how it now, works
0: Now, I always knew I'd make it to Hollywood and you're my direct link there. So (laughs) if you need like a small like puff piece article on a straight to DVD or straight to Tubi sequel, I'm your guy for it. There you go. This is actually just a job interview podcast episode. (laughs) (laughs) But we are talking about coincidentally from last week's episode. We're talking about another 1985 film. We were talking about Friday the 13th part five, a new beginning. And you requested this one. Tell me about that
1: there's so much to say about Friday the 13th part five, a new beginning. But when I was a kid, I'd watch them all. Like when I was a kid, I think they'd made up through eight. I remember seeing a poster for eight in Dallas oh, when I was geez. little and being like, that looks nuts. What's that? And my mom being like, you're four. You can't see that movie. <laughs> but, um, but then kind of, we, my sister and I would tape them and we never knew which one, we never kind of caught the title. So they were all interchangeable. One, two, three, four, five, and six were all just kind of interchangeable. And we'd watch them over and over and over again. And when I went to University of Texas, the head of playwriting there was David Mark Cohen, who has oh. like co-story by and yeah. screenplay credit on Friday the 13th, part five. Yeah, And I went into his office once and he had the poster there. I was like, oh, I'm like a fan of Friday the 13th. I'm like, oh, that must've been fun. And he looked at me like I was a moron. And he's <laughs> just like, what, are you, what what are you, crazy? And I'm just like, oh um, yeah, I guess obviously I don't know what, what horrors are making Paramount horror sequels. Um, He died sadly, not long after that, but he was my mentor. I was in class with like Mark Duplass and like Pam Ribbon who went and wrote Moana and like, he was this amazing mentor for playwriting students at the University of Texas. And he also has, he also wrote Friday the 13th part five. So I became really interested in the fact that people hate the movie. People hated Friday the 13th part five. He had a miserable time on the project. So, why did I enjoy it? Why did I? And so, I spent a lot of time with the movie and you start picking it apart. And when I got a chance to pitch on the reboot sequel, the one that followed uh, Fred versus Jason, I comes. realized I was facing a lot of the same questions that David did when he had to follow up for where do you go after the franchise is out? In his case, where do you go after Jason's dead? What do you do with the audience in that case? And the way they solve all of those crazy questions are insane. And that's why A New Beginning is so wild to watch because they turn it into this very subtle clue-ridden, whodunit, thinking that the audience is showing up, being like, oh, who's the new Jason? The audience showed up being like, oh no, Jason's back to life, it's fine. <laughs> But they were like, no, no. Is it Roy? Is it this kid? Is it the drifter? Is it Tommy himself? So they made it this whole whole murder mystery with all these blind alleys. And it's actually a really interesting movie. But it's not what anyone wanted to see. So what a film.
0: I'll be honest, Mark. When you... Yeah, it's like cinema. It's like (laughs) chef's kiss, like cinema. Um, (laughs) I I was... uh, I, I, when you said you were going to want to do this sequel, you just right off the bat, you were like Friday five. And I was like taken back. Cause I was like <laughs> December horror Friday, the 13th gasp, no way, but I'm down for right. it. Cause I mean, what the hell else am I going to talk about in December? If not like, you know, crazy sequel movies that I, I would want to enjoy. Cause I've never saw this one until you pitched it. And, um, I have seen Fridays one through four. I've seen six, I've seen seven and I've seen the killer cut and I've seen Jason X partially drunk and Freddy versus Jason. And yeah. uh, five was just one. I just never really saw. And I was like, I got to binge through all of them again, just to get to five. But then I was like, no, no, no. It's like, I'll watch no. four <laughs> and five. And cause yeah. like four, I mean, four is, is, I mean, you know, four is, is an awesome Friday, the 13th movie. Yeah. Um, and then watching five right after it, the same night, i was like i was so invested in like you said the Who Done It. i was like this is right. a weirder friday the 13th it's just the tone is different it's like a se- it's like it's weird because we just came off we we'll talk about star wars and i won't stop it's kind of like watching the sequel or the original trilogy and then going to watch the prequels you know just like a different vibe yeah. a different universe of the same thing because like one through three kind of has the same kind of tone and you know, you know, that's a trilogy, then four is so different. And then you put five with it and six, it totally fits. And I'm not going to lie as a first time viewer of Friday five. I'm not the biggest Friday the 13th person. I really enjoy a lot of the ones that are in the entire franchise. I have the box set, Um, uh, but it's like five is a strong candidate for me. Like I really enjoy five. And even I was involved with, I was like, wondering, like? Don't tell me just going to be Tommy at the end of it. Please don't tell me just that. I was pleasantly surprised with like the reveal. I thought it was interesting.
1: It's weird because if you see it as a pseudo remake of the first film, the first film it, where it's the mom, mm-hmm. it's Roy did it because his kid got killed by these kids at this camp or at, in this case, Pinehurst um, Center for Wayward Children. <laughs> um, it's at the end of the day, it's a remake. The first film it's a parent's revenge because ultimately Friday the 13th with its Sean Cunningham connection, to last house on the left is kind of doing the same thing as last house on the left. A child is killed and the parents take revenge. And so Friday the 13th is a remake of last house on the left is a remake of Virgin spring. Mm -hmm. So when you come into Friday the 13th part five, you're saying, how do we start it new? How do we replicate the success of the first film? And so they kind of do that, but then they keep Tommy And you start this kind of... I've never accepted four, five, and six as like the kind of Tommy trilogy because it doesn't work. Because six then takes so much of five. They have Mm the same opening scene. Tommy goes Mm -hmm. to a grave. Jason's resurrected.
0: Except One time it's a
1: dream. Then it's lightning bolt. And this series changes forever because now he's a mommy and he's supernatural and he can't defeat you. So it's a complete six changes, the whole franchise. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. But in Five's defense, <laughs> like, un- like lift a binder up. Of just here's <laughs> why Five is actually great. In the first films, they're all at Crystal Lake. They never mm-hmm. break out. Four, you go to a convenience store. Mm-hmm. The cops are never involved. In five, the mayor is screaming at the cops, being like, what's this Jason stuff? Suddenly, Jason's in the real world. He pulls out of Roy's thing, like the the newspaper articles about the Jason Mm -hmm. killings at Crystal Lake, except there's like a press photo of Jason, like (laughs) kind of with it. And you're like, who took that picture? But it's just, you have all of these things of Jason in the real world that start feeding out in five that they just took whole cloth in six. And they started yeah. bringing in cops. They started making Jason unstoppable. They started bringing in people beyond just camp counselors. There's all the stuff in Five that, as wonkily executed as it is, then became the second half of the Friday the Thirteenth franchise. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I There's a case to be made for that film, and the kills are great. Sort <sighs> of. I There's think just- they're strong. But you never see the mask. You, that's the weird thing about Five. You don't see the mask until tw- like 20 minutes to the end. You just see the hands again, like in the first film. Mm-hmm. So you don't actually, you could play it both ways that it's not Jason. Except you see the mask, the red mask with the hatchet, that Tommy sees in visions, that's the real Jason. And then you see the Roy mask with the little blue streaks. And they thought audiences would pick up on that. They thought, oh, there's gonna be that audience out there that knows there's two different Jasons here. No, didn't happen. Not at all, not for years.
0: So I just think it's just a bre- it's just a breakaway from like the similar formula that one through three had. And full disclosure, Friday the thirteenth, part two is my favorite, Friday the 13th. Um, but this one just feels like such a breakaway that four kind of did um that i really enjoy and it's weird because i kept thinking when watching this this feels like an odd mix of halloween 2 and dream warriors from nightmare on elm street but it's before dream warriors and right after um halloween 2 so it's like in this weird like mix of like being original while also taking away from another you know franchise but friday the 13th for me has always been like the halloween copycat of sorts and then eventually gets its footing and runs off with it for better or for worse and uh i really enjoyed that because like i like i like movie because my biggest problem except for two because i like two a lot um with one through three well one and three is like i don't care as much about the teenagers or the like like the, the the bonding with the characters they're just fodder for jason or mrs forhees but, and, but then four kind of gets you like Crispin Glover's in it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then you get, um, you know, Feldman and you kind of enjoy some of those characters. And then five, it gives you a community of characters that are so enjoyable. And it's kind of like, I'm a sucker for these kind of sequel movies. Because like the best thing sequel movies could do is give you side characters that you oddly yeah. fall in love with or care about. And you hope they don't die at the end.
1: <laughs> like, as you say, like Friday the 13th part two. There are mm-hmm. people in Friday the Thirteenth Part Two and in One and definitely in Four that you're like, no, that person shouldn't have been killed. That's ridiculous. That's mm-hmm. and you really, I still am bothered from stuff in Friday the Thirteenth Part Four. I forget her name, but the woman and she—it's just a throwaway kill. She's like the main character. She's the one who's supposed to survive this, yeah, and she doesn't. And I was like, this is a this is what Friday the Thirteenth is. You make people, you make characters that people like, but it doesn't matter. You can be good, you can be bad, you can be anything. Jason eventually just becomes the hand of God. He just (laughs) wipes out everybody and can't be stopped. And Jason X, they just blow up a whole space station full of millions of people for no reason. You're like, a whole lot of people just died because the ship went that way. He's just... He's not Freddy. Freddy's very targeted. It's like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to get this. There's a motive for Freddy's killings. Jason, every single human being is a version of the people that killed his mom. So that's it. So he kills everyone who comes into his path. And there's a certain brutalism to that, just motiveless stuff, that they stop him sometimes pretending to be the mom with the sweater and all, like in two but it doesn't matter. He comes back and in six and, and you just, you just can't do anything about him. So mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I totally like agree. I was like, I totally agree. And uh, you see Friday the 13th Part five. Again, what first time watch, you know, people who've watched a like, ah, like he's just, it's just like recency bias or something like that. Just the tone is different. And it's just the tone. I kind of crave in my Friday the 13th. Like I, like I like six, um, I'll be honest, I think it's really fun. it's it's campy. Um, this movie kind of doesn't have as much of that camp, but it has a lot of like awesome kills. like uh, and it it feels kind of like not sleazy because I want to sound like pervertish. It's but totally
1: like, sleazy. but it's it it's is like completely a, sleazy.
0: It's nice, sleazy. It's like it's like it's what I want
1: sleazy right?
0: So. It's like, it's like an Italian horror movie, but not an Italian yeah. horror movie, you know, but director Steinman. We got to talk about. The man is like Wes Craven 2.0 and it's funny they brought up Last House on the Left because he was slated to do supposedly a Last yeah, yeah. Uh, House on the Left part two, Um, but then he got to do this. Um, He did Savage Streets with Linda Blair. Have you seen yeah, Savage Streets?
1: I have. I saw it back then when I was watching all these movies.
0: Uh-huh. I remember catching born. my... I, <laughs> I remember just, watching part of that true. movie with my roommate in college and I was like, this is a crazy movie. Yeah. (laughs) Went back and watched it. I was like, I like this movie.
1: Yeah. There's certain, certain horror sequels of the eighties where you can feel the cocaine sweat on the negative. And (laughs) I will honestly say Friday the 13th part five, a new beginning. You kind of like, Oh wow. This, this is the scene. This is you like, everybody did a line and then they just rolled. And you just, when they make Coke jokes, in the front seat of the car as she comes out of the diner. And you're just like, they wanted, it's clear they wanted to have so much more cocaine like on film, they were just like, well, just do a little cocaine joke. (laughs) And it's just, the movie is, the movie, it's funny because then as you say, with part six, part six becomes very Mm self-aware. Part six really understands that, oh, we're in this universe where he's supernatural and you have to fight him but you can't stop him and the kills are all going to get set up the clean kill of just the guy who stumbles across his girlfriend in part five. Mm -hmm. And Jason just whips the belt around his eyes and bins the thing with the, the two metal rings and the branch. Mm -hmm. You're not going for like, Oh, here's this crazy kill you're going for. This is this insanely brutal thing and it's simple and ugly. And there's a lot of that in part five with the shears, with like just uh, cleavers in people's faces. There's not the, oh, is it going to be this weapon or this weapon and set up and set up, set up. It's not. It's just these ugly, nasty, quick, brutal kills.
0: Well, that so- scene you mentioned with the belt whip, I mean, that's an infamous scene from people who, you know, were working behind the scenes with the movie. It was slated to be a three minute sex scene, yeah. which it's already hot as it is. If you haven't, If you don't remember the scene outside with the two, it's a pretty steamy scene, let alone. Um, But yeah, three minutes. I mean, it seemed like a little excessive. Granted, um, Steinman was a a previous porn director. And, uh, you know, I could totally understand that. But I mean, Wes Craven did porn for a little bit. He wasn't, you know, I don't feel that kind of sexiness um, or that kind of sleaze from his movies. But um, uh, yeah, there was that
1: great quote from the editor. Where they were watching it at paramount that's in crystal lake memories and they were like watching it and green's like what the hell do i do with this what yeah. this is and he's like make it look like a pepsi commercial <laughs> i can hear so many parents that coming out of so many executives just like don't worry about a kid make it look like a pepsi commercial and i'm like <laughs> that just feels like because they don't even care it's just you know you got to get it on a thousand screens by next week just chop it up make it look like this
0: it almost is like this isn't your grant this isn't your dad's friday the 13th bucko you know this one's like a a new like a new kind of trend of like horror movies um in 1985 like you get something like the howling which is like i'm some of the the kills and like the nudity make no sense and this movie is very deliberate and it's kind of interesting to see that in a way um which in friday the 13th it's always felt you know Up to this point, it feels kind of dramatic and like you care about romance and stuff in this movie. The movie, there's no romance in this. If anything, there's just just a simp romance.
1: (laughs) It's ugly. Well, that's what's interesting because the first three movies where you have Cunningham directing the first and then Steve Miner Mm -hmm. um, taking it over because he Mm -hmm. was editor on the first and he worked on Last House. Mm -hmm. You have a real continuity between the first three movies and then four, you get Savini back and you have Joe Zito, who is a great director. Yep. and Paramount decides we're gonna we're gonna do something here. People like these. And final chapter is fantastic.
0: Mm-hmm. It-
1: and then they're like, oh shoot, let's just cash out and make a quick sequel with part five. Like they didn't have a plan. So
0: it, yeah, that's the thing. It's Zito did such a good job with four, and apparently the script he left the movie open ended because he was hoping Paramount would be like, "Hey, come back and finish whatever you're doing." Basically, what we hope Disney was gonna do for, um, oh now I'm blanking up for Ryan Johnson's Last Jedi, which oh, yeah. we never yeah, got. Yeah. They just brought you know, it's almost like they brought Sean Cunningham back after the success of four, made him do another Friday the Thirteenth, which yeah. Sean Cunningham, sure, I get. Not my kind of tea when it comes to Friday the 13th. I think Steve Miner t- understands Friday the 13th to a yeah. um, T. But- There's a reason
1: he went on to make so much more interesting stuff. Yep. Like working in the Halloween movies. Mm-hmm. Like Halloween H2O gets like, everybody hates Halloween H2O. There's weird stuff in that movie. That's an unusual, <laughs> for a dimension, who cares sequel. <laughs> when they kill Adam Arkin in that film... And they just lift him out and it's an ugly, brutal feels like the late seventies kill mm-hmm. in a movie that's otherwise been fairly straightforward. Yeah. And then, you know, then he goes and directs the pilot of Dawson's Creek and never <laughs> has to work again. So yeah, Steve <laughs> minor.
0: Yeah. So. He's, he's one of the goats when it comes to like horror movie directors Ruby, I love his stuff, but yeah, Steinman, he's just, okay. Like I'm not a, I'm not the biggest fan of like dark humor. Like you you know when i watched midsummer for the first time people were like i was like visibly upset with the movie it wasn't what i thought it was going to be and everyone's like it's a pitch black comedy breakup movie and i'm like what the fuck world are you living in i'm like no but it's like this movie i kind of get the dark humor in it you know it's slightly offensive and dated but like I have a good time with the movie because it makes up with it with after, uh, let me check my clock. It's been five minutes. Okay, now there's a kill scene. Right. I like it. You know, it's a kind of bridging the gap of a type of Friday the 13th movie. Um, it also well, gives- Throughout everything.
1: It's like, we're just going to kill somebody every five seconds. There's so many continuity errors in mm-hmm. it, but you just get kill after kill. And here's another reason to love it. Henry Manfredini, who did the score on all of them, <sighs> it's so the good. i would say his work on 5 they finally were like we really need you to pin like stitch this movie together and he's like okay it's my <laughs> time to shine and he delivers one of the best scores that he did for the entire franchise i think 5 is incredible for what he was probably handed versus what he delivered and it's amazing so yeah
0: yeah it's kind of like so when it's kind of like when Tim Burton told Danny Elfman to, like, do um, the Batman score. and He didn't have to go that hard, but he really did go that hard for us, yeah. you know? Um, also, th- th- here's the big thing about Friday the 13th Part 5. People, like, they don't like this movie. I- I've been going on Letterbox. Mark, are you on Letterboxd?
1: No. Dude, Sadly. get on.
0: You got to get on Letterboxd. I am old. Got to. I am old. <laughs>
1: no. I'm on, like, Goodreads. That's that's where I am. I'm on good Goodreads,
0: where all the so. authors are. I swear, it's <sighs> not A sad
1: lot, but <laughs> there we are.
0: But I go on these letterbox. Uh, it you know, and people are ranking the Friday Thirteenth movies. I should probably do that soon. Um, but I still haven't seen Jason Takes Manhattan. You know, so I can't technically make that list yet. But um, there's good
1: stuff in Manhattan too. <laughs> the ending is probably the worst one in the whole franchise, but. There's some amazing stuff in that crazy movie. There's some great kills in that movie. So
0: I even like that one. Maybe, you know, people like this episode enough and they want me to do a ranking of Friday the 13th. I'll do that. (laughs) I mean, I did recently my Letterboxd review after the dreadful Halloween kills. I did my Halloween ranking. Uh, And I think... I haven't heard back from some of my friends on Twitter. I think they might've gotten like a cardiac arrest or something because I put in Friday. I put Halloween two, the original Halloween two is number one. And then number two, I put season of the witch. And then number three, I put Rob zombies Halloween two. So.
1: See, I agree with that one. Rob zombies Halloween two is like one of the most underrated weird, like Halloween one, his first Halloween. I totally is like, he's there too much. He's trying to do Halloween. He's trying to do his original. He's trying to do Carpenter. He's trying to do his original. When he comes in with Halloween 2, he's like, this will be a Rob Zombie film. And it's bizarre. It's finally him doing what he wanted to do. And it's a beautiful film. I it's, love Halloween 2.
0: Mark, you just, you just purchased your ticket for another, <laughs> another appearance <laughs> on this podcast. Because Halloween 2 kickstarts Rob Zombie's pre-824 24 um, movie binge because he does that and he does Lord Salem, um, yeah. which is totally A24 is basically recipe book for all their movies after that. I think Robert Eggers gets everything based off Lords of Salem. Uh, I, I'm convinced. But yes, Mark, with those comments, you're, you're going to be back on this podcast. Oh my God. <laughs> but that's, yeah, See,
1: that's the sad thing. Rob Zombie, the amount of unmade projects that he hasn't gotten financed. That you come across like his like final days of Groucho Marx script, like all oh. these projects that he was his Blob remake. There's so many insane Rob Zombie projects out there that didn't get made, and he was going to do like a Paul Lind thing, or maybe maybe I'm mixing them up with somebody else. But he would, he has all these things that he was doing. He was doing the hockey movie. I'm hoping that the Munsters thing might put him back somewhere mm. where he's back to doing just whatever he wants to do because sometimes his like an off rob zombie project is still more interesting than half the other stuff that's out there so he's such a weird filmmaker
0: yes oh my god if there's anyone who's going to tackle a texas chainsaw massacre friday the 13th movie it's going to be rob zombie he's going to do it right i need him to do that I need him to do um, a Blob remake or a Blob sequel to '88 because Chuck Russell's a god, and then I need a Haunted World of Super Beast too for my for my animated love. You yeah.
1: know? <laughs> uh, he would be and, he would do really well in Chainsaw, except he's done so much with the with the family from the House of Thousand the Corpses. Yeah, it yeah. feels like he's gone. He's done his version of Chainsaw. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how much more he do, but his Friday the 13th would be, who knows what that would look like.
0: Seriously. So. But here's the thing, they keep making more Texas Chainsaw movies and they never given yeah. the saddle to Rob Zombie, who's kind of perfected the formula outside of anybody else since Toby Hooper.
1: They might be, it might be like the Bond franchise. They have to keep it a certain way. <laughs> and so they can't deviate from it. So they mm-hmm. have to, they have to do this and this and this. And they know he'd do something avant-garde or bizarre. So <laughs> I don't know. Maybe
0: I need like funny. a A 24 ask Rob Zombie spliced film version of like Village of the Dam slash Children of the Corn. That I need something. I need something like that from Rob Zombie. You know, I just I don't know. I've recently watched those, and uh, I'm like, yeah, I need Rob Zombie to do something demented with kids like that. That sounds weird to say I'd see on air.
1: I a Purge movie if he did a purge movie, him or Cronenberg doing a purge movie and really leaning into it in that the crazy psychology of those films, i see that too. So,
0: yeah. Especially with the forever sequels. purge. It's kind of yeah. isolated. He could totally do an Isolated hillbilly ask kind of yeah. purge movie. Be or awesome. he could do it like high rise.
1: You never know what he'd do. So you, uh, you must
0: know I love the Purge films because, like, I oh. binged through that unintentionally during Halloween. And it's like one of the, my favorite all time franchises now. Like, I love it. It's Purge. a
1: weird franchise. So they really yeah. understand what's going on in a weird way. So, yeah,
0: it's like modern horror movie franchises. It's like the Purge kind of saved me from the pits of hell.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's some. There's some stuff, I mean, I'm not gonna, but there's some stuff that I see and I'm just like, oh, that's the fourth in a franchise. Uh, I don't understand why they made one past the first. But then with Purge, you're like, they just keep nailing. It's like some of the Saw movies where you're just like, oh, there's nothing left here, there's nothing left. And then you see it and you're like, oh, there is. There is a weird idea that you're chasing down a rabbit hole that you as an audience member don't see But Bousman or whoever is like mm-hmm. Oh yeah, here's something else I'm going to do So, mm-hmm. well.
0: Oddly enough For horror franchise movie icons To go in space, it's only been Jason And the Leprechaun When the Uh-oh. Leprechaun goes to space
1: Hellraiser 4 bloodlines One of the three overlapping plot lines Is Pinhead in space Holy shit, so, no
0: way Because they're oh. building
1: a satellite That in the third part Turns, transforms into lamar sean's box to catch pinhead in space so
0: okay i'm gonna nerd out but could you imagine if rob zombie got a hold of clive barker's like mind and did a hellraiser movie that would be like a rated x horror movie yeah that would be there's so
1: many other like
0: they're still making
1: doing weave world zombie doing anything but zombie doing in the hills the cities which is a very quiet, very staid, until you have villages turning into giants attacking each other. There's so much insane stuff in Barker's work. Though I do think zombie would make a really interesting director for that.
0: Yeah. Another director, not to just kind of go off the coattails because he also did a sequel and you mentioned him earlier. You talk about Mark Duplass being in your class while you were too busy dozing off and slacking off in college. Um, Mark Duplass did the creep creep too. The creep. Yeah. Yeah. Which one of my uh, previous guests, um, Philip Yount from the dead ringers podcast. He loves those movies. Yeah. Um, you know, Mark Duplass, I could, I love his works. I think he needs more work in Hollywood besides his independent stuff. I could see him doing something like an invasion of the body snatchers of some sort. Yeah. You know, something like sophisticated with a little bit of comedy. Totally could see him doing something like that.
1: It's funny because he was nominated today for Globe for acting in Morning Show. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. There's that entire second half of his career that's mm-hmm. acting. And he's a wonderful actor. And you're like, yeah, direct more stuff, do this, do this. But no, he's perfectly happy also
0: acting. Yeah, I love him and his brother's works. I think they're great stuff. Uh, but like, let's get back to Friday part six for, or five for a second. Like I said, I didn't realize this movie was so hated when I first was watching it. It's only after yeah. I watched it and did research. People were like so visibly upset with this movie. They, they just bashed it because it's not Jason. Yeah, but he's the Roy even, one. Yeah, Right, but and. I still really enjoyed it. And this movie made bank. Like this movie yeah. was like a box office hit. Um, it basically, probably the money made from this movie funded the rest of the franchise after. But I I mean, if I saw this movie f- opening weekend, I would have thought, oh, this is so good. You know, it would have been something like, I mean, I don't know, how you follow like the modern fr- horror franchises how it is today, but like with Halloween Kills, you know, where, where that's going to Texas Chainsaw franchise and stuff. You know, like they make a lot of money, but like it leaves fans with like weird tastes in their mouths. And then like on Twitter, it's divided. Um, I wonder That's why about- I like the
1: Chucky series on sci fi where it's Mancini yeah. and David Kirshner and it's the same people back doing their own weird Chucky stuff. I'm like, great, have fun, do your weird Chucky stuff. That's awesome. People love it. So. Yeah.
0: It's weird. Like it's weird that how horror movies can be different. And like, ba- I feel like it's so, I don't know if it's just cause I'm on Twitter all the time or something, but it feels like either a horror movie the biggest problem is it's too different. Like something like a Friday the 13th part of five can be and people don't like it, but like now we crave such different things in franchise horror movies. We need something different to stand out. You know, each installment needs to stand out for us to enjoy but it feels like now a lot of horror movie franchises are almost kind of being like cookie cutter blueprint by the numbers, you know, I would yeah. crave a movie to be like a Friday the 13th part five a new beginning where it's just so different it takes fans in different directions, it includes different subgenres outside of the horror genre, that would be totally great, like. Halloween Kills kind of opened that up for me. And I, I have friends who really like the movie. And I don't... I, it's it's because it's the most recent horror movie. It's for me. Right. To, it's the only pinpoint version. I can bring out different ones. But it's just like with your horror movie franchises, if the independent indie stuff is actually better than that, there's a serious yeah. problem. And I feel like with A New Beginning, we would kill for something like that now, I feel like.
1: And that was key. that's what's weird. It was still a tiny little functionally
0: non-union independent
1: film. is just a couple million dollars made out here in Thousand Oaks. And yet Beverly Hills Cop, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Friar 13th, keeping Paramount alive in the 1980s. And it's just <laughs> insane that those two franchises cost tens of millions of dollars. Friar 13th with its tiny little connection to its audience really just blew it out of the water each time. But because there was such audience expectation over time that it wasn't Jason really just became the reputation of part five and then six comes on and is immediately like, no, no, no. Everything you actually wanted in five, we have given you in six. So it helps to delineate the reputation of five even more. And six kind of goes, and then you have seven the first Kane one which is so weird it's Carrie White but you can't Mm -hmm. get the rights fighting Jason (laughs) yeah there's great kills in it Kane is amazing in it but you start going down the path of the supernatural Jason so it's very five does mark an ending and when I come up with my top five Friday the 13th it's number five for me it's Mm. still it I still like part five Roy and all better than six seven eight nine ten eleven reboot cool all
0: that yeah no i totally agree with that with everything you said i think it's it, it, it i think it needs to be mentioned it's almost like the season of the witch effect that halloween kind of had but yeah. the, the difference is you know in halloween season of the witch they what they what do they do they give you basically michael myers after that what do we get like four good in the franchise four good. good
1: yeah it's not, but it's not one and two.
0: No, so. it's not. And and that's about it. But like with Friday the 13th, when they got their season of the witch with this movie, it's kind of like, we're just going to go full on on this. You know, we're not just going to bring the character back or, or anything. They're just like, we're going to just give you everything about, you know, what you liked about this, which is yeah. weird because see the witch was not well received when it came out. Mo- I, I would say in the last five years, season of the witch has really come around in a lot of people's rankings for Halloween um, but, how, but Friday Five doesn't kind of get that, and as someone who's just recently watched it, I'm kind of wondering why. It's kind of like, it's kind of like when people say the Dream Master isn't very good when you think about the Nightmare movies, yeah. but like the Dream Master still is pretty enjoyable, you know. And I've come around with Dream Child too. I have not,
1: so <laughs> I, I should rewatch it. There, there's a, I'm like first four, and then I start when they become when Freddie's not scary anymore is when I kind of Uh, fall with the series a little. But I mean, when you're a Friday the 13th fan, there's Friday the 13th movies, all other horror films, 200 Feet of Crap, and the Nightmare on Elm Street (laughs) franchise. So you can enjoy them here and there, but you're (laughs) still that kid from the elementary school playground who all the other kids are Freddy kids. And you're like, I'll fight you, I'm a JC kid. So you never (laughs) lose that, like, I like the guy with the hockey mask not the guy with the little fingers who makes the little jokes with Roseanne Barr. <laughs> I like Jason Voorhees.
0: Which is funny. Cause my, one of my earliest, like own made like Halloween costumes growing up was a uh, Fred, Freddy Krueger. Cause like, I love <laughs> nightmare on Elm street one and two and three. So damn much, but um, Friday oh, the was 30- the
1: actual po- popular thinking persons, like money invested into making those into big movie. Like that was a big franchise that mm-hmm. was, you know, New Line cared because they didn't have, they they had Ninja Turtles, they had that, they had to make movies. Paramount's just like, hire that porn guy and here's two mil and tell no one because it's non-equity and shoot it in Thousand Oaks. <laughs> and double, <laughs> double thousand oaks for jersey
0: which is funny it, it does feel like it's such like a sleaze studio at the time because like you're they like what's popular right now what's gonna get popped i don't know if they like took a peek at like dream warriors script before it came out and like halloween 2 they basically had while well, copying it but making it kind of different you know because it's like main characters with ptsd you know yeah you get jarvis You get Laurie Strode, you get Nancy, you get Angela from Sleepaway Camp even. Um, This movie has odd like Sleepaway Camp vibes. Um, It does, you're right. Yeah, yeah, it's like all these guys with PTSD or some sort of like the reason for their surviving this trauma or like they become the villains. Friday Five kind of takes that, you know? I don't know if it's copying at the time. I don't know, but like- I imagine
1: it is. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like it worked here it worked here it worked here i mean psycho ultimately where they go with it is True. abusive mother son becomes a monster mm-hmm. and friday the 13th is mommy was looking elsewhere kid drowns somehow survives comes back kills everybody so mm-hmm. it really is a mother's neglect <laughs> creates a monster and so psycho friday the 13th yeah
0: and all these movies with these characters, like I mentioned, they all have that one like side character that's so into the scene of the time. Like yeah. when you think about the punk and punk rocker scene, in like you know, Dream Warriors with that one girl who's like, "I'm bad and beautiful," yeah, you know, or like you know, you get um, the girl doing the robot type dance while listening to David Bowie and the Cure or Alan Parsons Project, maybe I don't know in this movie um you kind of get pseudo that.
1: echo was the name of the band and she's dancing to it's pseudo echo it's one of those like they don't have to pay anybody for the license they probably got the <laughs> song for like three dollars and like a bag of cocaine so that's that's how you make that deal i
0: imagine if like drugs were legal and then like you could pay stu- movie studio execs with cocaine more movies would be made
1: um you- I'm not going to, like, besmirch Universal Studios in the late 70s. um, But you you say that almost like joking that, like, people weren't paid in cocaine. My first job when I came to L.A., there was Cocaine Fridays. I was at dot-com. And there was, like, the bathroom where the execs went, where the bonuses were cocaine. I'm, like, 20. I'm, like, I have never seen cocaine before in my sheltered Texas life. And these people are like, oh, it's Friday, time to do rails. And
0: I'm like, it's all true. It's all true. Hollywood is cocaine. Oh, my God. <laughs> so. I swear, you watch 1979, Abel Ferreira's Driller Killer. And I, you better believe cocaine was a currency in that movie. I love that movie to death. It's one of my top five right. 1979 films. But that movie is totally cocaine-infested.
1: Ferrara is, it's funny because i I Farrar is one of my favorite directors. Same, when I was dude, working what in video fuck? games.
0: Where have, oh, you be, where have you been in my life, dude? So Jeez. Good. But I was
1: working in video games doing a Friday the 13th spin-off. It was called Devil's Night and it was for a Canadian company. And Kane Hodder was in, like, did motion capture. Died in the Vivendi-Sierra merger. But it was fun to work on because you're showing people movies of how do you motivate somebody to hate everyone? How do you motivate (laughs) kills? And so I'm showing like High Plains Drifter. I'm showing like Sweeney Todd before there was the Tim Burton, like the old Angela Lansbury, George Hearn, Toronto version and like stuff like that. But then I'm also like, Let's watch a lot of Abel Ferrara. Let's watch not just Ms. 45 and Drill but like Fierce City, which is such a strange movie. And King of New York, Bad Lieutenant, and like all the weird in the funeral, but like all the weird movies where you have bad characters who live by their own kind of life and their own kind of code and their murders and their cheats and their monsters, but you can't take your eyes off them.
0: No, Ferrer is
1: such a great filmmaker.
0: For that. He's so good. He's so good. It, he, it's like the thing about him—he he understands urgency. He understands—I yeah. um, don't want to say just because I—I wasn't one of a word that existed probably then, but he understands like atmosphere and like vibe. You know, like he totally yeah. understands the the setting and the mood. And he also really like he puts himself like when I'm watching an Abel Ferrer movie, I feel like I'm understanding Abel Ferrer's psyche. He feels like yeah. he's 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 projected himself. In these movies, like King of New York and like Driller Killer, great double feature. You sense that kind of like that heightened um, anxiety in this like this nervousness and scared of like failure. Yeah. while Also acting out violently because you don't know how else to react to those fears that are in your subconscious. Um, God bless those movies also. Um,
1: well, they <laughs> feel like you're just going to die on the streets of New York. You feel mm-hmm. like the city is going to eat you. Mm-hmm. And you love that, like, Fierce City is ridiculous. Strippers are dying, so they hire this guy <laughs> to fight this guy who's killing with like nunchucks. And it, but you you buy into it. You believe yes. that the city's gonna kill Billy D. Williams if you yep. don't stop a guy with nunchucks. Mm-hmm. And the only guy that can do it is Tom Berenger. And it's just <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> the weird ugliness that's similar to Larry Cohen's movies. Yes, you get with a Ferrara
0: in New York. So. I- Oh. abel ferrer was one one psychological horror like psychological and in, like induced film like a la taxi driver to ask he's one movie like that away from being a scorsese oscar yeah. nominee kind of director he really i feel like he could have been that but
1: but he never wanted to be he wants to make these movies with willem dafoe in <laughs> siberia yep that three people are gonna watch and be like This is what Lighthouse was trying to do in certain ways. I love Lighthouse, but I really like Siberia because Ferrara, as you just said, you get his very niche psyche. He's telling you exactly how insane it feels to be Abel Ferrara, like Lodge Kerrigan, like with Clean Shaven and Keen. You're just like, you're claustrophobically stuck in the mind of Abel Ferrara.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's it's terrifying. very fine. It's very Polanski-esque, but thank um, God for Ferrera. He's not a creeper like he was. But um, he i totally—he might this. be.
1: Uh, I
0: mean, you never know. <laughs> the, so maybe
1: <laughs> I would believe any story. Like anybody could walk up and be like, "Here's this horrible story about Ferreira. I'm Like that—that—that that, that feels right. I'm
0: just mad I never got an able for Warriors type film. You know, Jorlukir oh. came out in '79. So Warriors. He could have done something similar like that. I need like a gang warfare movie besides King of New York. Um, anyway. Go back to Friday five, uh, oh, yeah. five. Friday five. When I say Bruce Green, and you think of Friday the Thirteenth, I I didn't know who Bruce Green was, but I did the research and I was like, holy crap! There's no way in hell this kind of guy was in this movie or had any work in this movie. It's kind of like the the pod uh, or dop of uh, Terror Train, you know, where it's like they were attached to such great works, but they also did like a grimy little you know horror movie that was low budget. Yeah. Well,
1: that's what's funny about my my wife works for Disney and she'll be working on, she works, makes the Descendants movies and makes, speaking of sequels, she makes the musicals like Zombies and Descendants and all those. And suddenly it'll be, her DP will be Mark Irvin, who was Cronenberg's DP on like all the old films and Reitman's DP, who was on all the films in the seventies and eighties. And they're coming in with this, just loads of institutional knowledge of oh yeah, we blew up a car like that 30 years ago on this. Here's how you blow up a car and you make it flip that way so the flames go that way towards camera. You cannot replicate that level of institutional knowledge. And it's crazy that as, you know, older filmmakers, they're working on Disney movies in Canada now. So it's just, (laughs) it's great when you see those survivors who've been around, like the director of Rambo, who like shoots SVU all the time. And you just like, these guys are still out there like making films and work and doing one hour dramas. So it's very, it's great when they actually have a career past something because Steinman's career ended.
0: right? Um,
1: Almost everybody, I mean, Richard Warlock, Dick Warlock, the stunt guy kept going, but so many people's careers ended at Friday the 13th, part five, which is crazy. Yeah,
0: it is weird. It's kind of like, okay, thank you for your service. Now you're gone and we're going to bring in New blood to kind of you know pave the way. but out what Zito was doing with Ford, which he never got the opportunity to do, which would have yeah. been good. I wish, I wish we got a follow-up to four from Zito. That would have been awesome. Uh, but Gru Screen was the editor on the film. He did Star Wars, he did, you know, Indiana Jones and stuff. Like, I feel yeah. like this movie definitely tested his patience, though, <laughs> with all the restrictions and the type of personalities I'll say that were on the set. I mean, for a guy like him and like what he was doing at that time as well, it probably felt like he was sent to the detention, you know, room.
1: Or he was just in-house at Paramount. See, that's (laughs) what it probably was. There's a guy, there's a guy at Warner's. uh, I'll say his name. Frank Curiosity was one of those guys where you're just like, well, here's a pile of film. Make a movie out of it. (laughs) Green might've been that guy for Paramount. He might've just been one of the guys who they're like, we need someone to cut this. Mm-hmm. And so he did and he put it together and he assembled it and they released it and they made a ton of money. And that's why you have certain in-house editors who can be- he has all the great quotes in, like crystal Lake memories where you're just mm-hmm. like, Oh, he's the one that who doesn't give a fuck. He's the one who'll tell you anything. <laughs> and it's always, I, I was doing a panel for messengers at USC once and like, there's all the people like telling good stories about it and noble stories. And I'm just like, there were 15 writers and 10 different directors and everybody got fired and all this. And the <laughs> editor was beside me and he suddenly was like, "Whoo! I'm glad you said that. I'm the third editor on this film and here's everything that went wrong. And we're just like, <laughs> high five. Here's all the stories film students actually need to hear. And the producer who's sitting beside me is just... No, say it's genius and brilliant and everything was great. <laughs> and we're like, here's where we went wrong. It was amazing. Oh my and that's god. That's editors. Editors just are like, ah, I've got my next 10 movies, so who cares? So
0: but it's uh, oddly one of the harder jobs I feel like on a film set. Like I haven't directed a film, I've written a few short films, scripts that are in my H drive, don't worry. Um, but <laughs> but here's the thing: I feel like an editor is like ultra important like you know it was almost like you know that everyone thinks about the director to me it's the director is important yes but it's the writer it's the editor it's the cinematographer it's the DOP that's very important when it comes to what makes a movie great um and you see that often now where an editor is ultra important like imagine if you don't have an editor on the Nolan film imagine if you don't have a good um, editor doing something like on a Ari Aster set you know like heaven forbid. You get like a lackluster type, but like for this movie, maybe it's saved for me. Maybe it works so well because of Bruce Green understanding the kind of what the intent of the movie was with also like his experience to kind of make this movie work. I think that's like an often overlooked part of the... um, the film set, what it makes a movie great. I think it's kind of overlooked. We kind of take for granted because like when you see an MCU movie or you see like a big blockbuster Michael Bay movie, there's your two, your chime in now. Um, you see a billion names on there and like people forget to like, you know, give a nod or a standing ovation to the editor, the the gaffer, the best boy grip, you know, like these people kind of make these movies. Well, that's a real question
1: about the editor on on part five grip gaffers electricians all those people are on set bruce might not have been on set he might have steinman might have shot it brought it to paramount mancuso might have hired green and he might have done all his work at paramount certain people certain people will cut as they're making the film but -hmm. you didn't have that opportunity with film you have that now with digital and video much easier if green i don't even know if steinman knew green when they went into the film so he might have been there might've been the dis- director's assembly and then it might've been put together by Green and Mancuso on the studio. Once Steinman was out of the picture and then you bring in Manfredini because the editors always work very close with the composer and they might have made what the final film actually is because uh, I don't know if this, I'm sure it's public, but Marcus Nispel who directed the Michael Bay Texas Chainsaw since we're doing Bay stories and directed mm-hmm on the Friday 13th I worked on, um, Marcus doesn't edit. Marcus makes the film, films everything, has the producers kind of work with the actors, but he's there as a commercial director, he's there to kind of build the movie and the world of the movie, and then take all of that and hand it to Michael Bay and his team at Bay Films and Platinum Dunes to then build everything else. And that's just his process. That's just how he worked. He was there to get the negative and somebody else was going to cut the negative. I don't know, but unlike Messengers, there were two directors, They were twin brothers, Danny and Oxide Pang. Danny would shoot a day, Oxide would be editing in the hotel room and they just switch off and switch off like that. So they were editing as they went to look for things they could miss. I have no idea if Steinman and Green were working together on set, but it may be since he had done big paramount movies before he was just the guy that they're like, okay, we need an editor for this. Who's got six weeks. And they just Mm -hmm. shuttled him right in. So
0: it's a good point. Based on the special features that screen factory produced, produced for this movie, um, at least how I watched it. um, It does seem like Steinman was more interested in what this movie would do for his career than like how the Uh, movie's final product pushed out. Not to say anything about Steinman. I'm sure he's made very tasteful pornos that I haven't seen yet. But, um, <laughs> it but just this was like... his
1: last film, he never directed again.
0: Yeah, I feel like And there's probably... weird
1: stuff in Crystal Lake Memories about actresses who work later who were like, Oh yeah, he liked hit on me in the auditions and stuff. And you're like, Yeah, Paramount might have heard some of that and been like, we're gonna go in a different direction for part six. So
0: yeah. Speaking of women on know. the set for this movie, um, Luann Voorhees who ironically has the same last name as the Voorhees family um, who is in that infamous scene the love making scene that would have been like eight minutes long or whatever three right. minutes long or whatever I, I, I looked up in my research she ended up being an educator and then being fired oh, when I'm students trying- found out about her scene in oh, this movie that sucks that sucks uh, I mean, that's tough
1: so sorry like- to you out there wherever you are yeah. It's it just, funny. I just found. Out, I was reading a book just now on a '80s punk rocker, Alice Bag, who's in the Bags here in LA. And after her band kind of didn't go, she became LAUSD teacher for like 30 years, and like did all of this. None of the kids ever kind of made the connection that she was like this hardcore punk rock singer in LA for <laughs> a long time. But I guess sometimes, I don't know. Right, it's, it's a different like,
0: time, I guess. Like right, uh, this is 1985. She becomes an educator, in like the 2000s, and then like yeah. you know, someone like my type of personality goes to Family Video and rents Friday Five and goes, yeah. "Holy crap! There's my teacher right there, nude." <laughs> um, Poor Debbie Yeah, I mean, she did great in the movie. I thought she was really entertaining. I liked her. She's movie. funny. Yeah. yeah. She kind of gives a of a breakfast change. She's funny. Yeah, so. she gives a Lydia quigley s type of performance in a way, you yeah. know, just like not afraid to be nude, very loud and proud. It's awesome. Um, but yeah, I, I think also that's one thing about this movie I really like. The characters, the side characters, they all kind of have like a personality even though they're introduced two minutes into the movie and then they die eight minutes later, you know? It's yeah. like, it's weird. <laughs> even though like the kid... Well, the, the kills movie, start
1: fast. This
0: movie, and the moves other like, Friday
1: movies, it takes time.
0: This movie There's moves like butter. This movie's butter. It's smooth, like yeah. It's one of the easiest But you do watch lose ones. people. Sorry. Yeah. I was gonna say you do. Lo- yeah. I was like you do lose a lot of people, but like it's like a fast movie, and it's the same runtime as all the other movies before it. It's yeah. It's weird. It's like that's why that's my problem with the Friday franchise from one through three. Outside of two, is two is so entertaining and engaging. But like for one and three for me, it doesn't rise above to the occasion. I'm if I'm having a if I'm having a beer mark, I am falling asleep 30 to 40 minutes into Friday the 13th, part one and three. But I'm not with two. I I, I disagree on
1: three. One one, the problem for me is at this point, I really like the characters so much.
0: Okay. That I'm kind
1: of into part one. For me, three. I don't know. There's something so weird about three and the wonky three, D stuff, right, like the right. yo-yos and the snake <laughs> that it's kitsch. It, it, I enjoy three, four, obviously I like more, but like three, I like that. It really, I like Jason with the fate, with the hockey mask. I like the actor. I like how I like each of the different Jason actors, but <laughs> It's just something really in in part five where it's morga like he's very straight up but like i forget who is it cj graham like whoever he's hunchback it's weird though it's very is a monster when he strides out and does the james bond thing with the harpoon yeah
0: yeah. like
1: it's cold one two three turn shoot it's just it starts bringing in the real brutality that's carried through the next three films yeah i really like the kills in three
0: i think so. three yeah that's a, my that's my weird relationship with three it's like i don't care about it too much but i also know it's probably when people think of friday the 13th it's the staple for friday the 13th um at least in classical sense because then the killer cut came out in 09 um but yeah three it's it it's kind of what i wanted i guess for a hockey mask jason but i, I think four just kind of solidifies that but it's also the ending so it's kind of that weird kind of you don't get that in a lot yeah. of franchise horror movies um but well, yeah part you,
1: four is kind of a greatest hits i mean six is ultimately a greatest hits but four really is like it literally gonna is gonna a do greatest hits yeah counselors house like so many of the kills are repetitious from the first three films and four but they're the best versions and savini really comes back to the franchise and is like okay we're gonna do crazy stuff and the kid's going to be in a monster masks Mm -hmm. and there's just all the weird stuff in it that just is zito also that just makes it you know have its own big personality
0: i don't have to tell you when savini is doing work on a movie you know the movie's going to be very entertaining it's going to be a eye candy galore type of movie um And yeah, I kind of missed that presence. I mean, Hannes obviously went on and did a lot of better works after that. But um, with four, uh, it's just kind of a presence missed. You know, I think five though, does a good job of like respecting what Saviti did with four in the special effects because like the killers, the kills in this movie are inventive. They're creative. They're very gory. Um, Yeah. And and we're not
1: seeing any of them. That's what's interesting. Because it's it's as chopped up as seven. So you're missing so much of the gore that was shot on set. You're missing so much of the prosthetics. But I think it still works. You know that Steinman wanted to just squirt blood all over the cameras, <laughs> do all this kind of gory stuff. But I think it works. The suggestion of how horrible these things are. The threat, when he take, I forget her name, the, the old woman who lives next uh-huh. door on the farm. And he just smashes her face in the boiling water she crushes the tomato after getting the hatchet in the face after be decapitating her son on the motorcycle yeah (laughs) like you don't see all the gore he wanted to have the head bounce for a while it's still ugly it's still fierce it's still just this nasty ferocious this guy's not just killing people Mm -hmm. he's doing it brutally yeah and there's no reason for it
0: so no that's what's great and it's like oddly she was in sharky sharky's machine with burt reynolds yes. which i haven't yeah. seen i've been told to watch it plenty of times but i just know from my research she was in that so now i feel like i need to watch it you know because i liked her in the movie um
1: <laughs> well they do the kid they the guy who falls out of the building thing from Die Hard is that's the end of sharky's machine that's where they stole uh, that from
0: so. ah okay god bless burt reynolds
1: <laughs> yeah. um
0: but here's the Talking thing
1: about with- a box office star who used to save studios. I mean,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so. mm-hmm. and in relevance with Paul Thomas Anderson with his new movie coming out. But anyway, in Friday five, um, I, when I was watching four and five, I forgot. I was watching a franchise that was coming out with like the Halloween, the nightmare movies and a bunch of other, you know, one-off movies in American studios, not Italian, where the MPAA was probably like overtime working to edit these movies and censor them. I always forget how violent Friday the 13th was in comparison to its competitor franchises.
1: Well, it was also coming out from a major studio. Mm -hmm. So you're not having to compete with the Evil Deads and like all the indie movies, the phantasms, and all the ones that Avco and all of them are putting out like independently. You, You have a target on your back because you're paramount. And I think that ultimately might have hurt Friday the 13th because the MPAA was so like, if you hurt evil dead, they'll be like, we'll just make evil dead three. <laughs> if you take on, if Paramount says we're not going to listen to your cuts, we're just going to release this. However, they'll be like, well, we're going to mess with one of your other franchises. We're going to mess with one of the other 15 movies Paramount has coming out this year. So Paramount had to v- be very beholden in the MPAA. So they're making wild movies get chopped to pieces and that really happened with five and really happened with seven so
0: it's it feels like friday the 13th was probably like you know you hear about the video nasties that were happening in the uk you know in europe it feels like maybe friday the 13th was absorbing all of that kind of heat like the uk films were because i don't feel like halloween and nightmare were getting that heavily censored than friday the 13th was you know and maybe chainsaw got
1: chainsaw got attacked evil dead got attacked oh what was the other one there were some of them like hellraiser hellraiser came out x i think yeah it was in America. and i
0: remember watching it. my eyes Crazy. were like bulged i was just like insane when watching hellraiser
1: <laughs> and it's not friday the 13th it's not kill after kill after kill mm-hmm. it's just this merciless film about sex and blood and horror and experience mm-hmm. it's a beautifully made film and it's not to put it side by side with the other kind of films coming out is so weird that the NKA would look at a Friday the 13th and look at a Hellraiser and say we have to do the same thing to both movies. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't think they ever understood Hellraiser.
0: It's too bad. <laughs> I just you know, in the in the in the times that we live in now with director's cuts, extended editions of movies. I need like these older, heavily censored movies to come out with re releases. Like, how many freaking releases of the original Friday the 13th do we get that, like, it still has Jason on the cover when he's not even in it? Can I yeah. get, Can I get like, some of these Friday movies to have? And I know Screen Factor just put out the new box set, but, like, ex- like all these other 80s franchises to get, like, unrele- unrated released cuts. I know they're heavily copyrighted. They're all gone. Like, yeah. if
1: you cut on film and you cut it out, that film's in the trash. <laughs> it's just gone that's why it's weird with some of the friday stuff where there's this stuff from like the japanese laser disc on seven all the stuff that people are like oh where's the stuff for five it's gone once it's out of the film nobody saved it thinking there'd be a dvd release or any kind of release this stuff's just thrown in the waste bin in the editor's office so it's not it doesn't even exist anymore so there's cool. no reason to keep it that's so, so
0: crazy to think. Yeah, it's
1: like all the Doctor Who's that are just <laughs> taped over by the BBC. They're like, "Oh, we aired Doctor Who. We don't need this anymore." Or Beatles recordings. We're like, "Oh, we we aired that already. So we'll record over this this you know Beatles concert that was on the BBC."
0: Right. You
1: don't realize that people want an archive of this thing.
0: So here mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. once. There so. you go. Nice. So if I were to ask you. Um, you know because like you, you talked about your mentor being um cohen being on this movie like you know how did it feel like being on the set for the i don't know what else to call the friday the Thirteenth remake outside the killer cut i've always just called it the killer cut that's what every release says on there yeah. what was it like being on that set for that like obviously growing up i was never on the franchise.
1: set i was fired no? long before oh
0: you didn't even think i got fired you know? before
1: it was shot oh no no not at all <laughs> um I've only been on the set of two things I wrote on, but no, they fired me. Oh, I, I, can, I can do this whole thing. Um, Michael, they, they weren't, um, I mean, I guess we got a minute. Um, new line after Freddy versus Jason was like, we're looking for a new take on Friday the 13th. We have no idea what to do um, because Freddy versus Jason was here and they were trying to build up to what's still not made. The 13th, Friday the 13th, Mm F-13, which would be the next film. Now it's at uh, Friday the 13th, part 12 So they're just looking for pitches. And I came in with a pitch and said, it's all about part five. And they said, what are you talking about? I said, you need to remove part five from the franchise. And not Supernatural anymore. Have him still be alive. Have him not having gotten killed at the end of part four. Never have the Roy stuff. Have it be, um, again, back to Crystal Lake, fix, have like a preamble thing and fix the stuff with Pamela Voorhees to change the timeline. But just, and make it be where they were going with what the audience wanted from part five, which is Jason's an urban legend, which he's talked about in two and three. And people know he's there somewhere. So don't go in the woods. <laughs> and that's it. And so I was like, so just do a new part five and do an actual sequel to part four. And they hired me and I started writing the script and then Platinum Dunes came in and I was like, okay, I'm about to be fired. But I wasn't, they had not seen Friday the 13th and I got the Monday call of, wait, where's Jason? And I was like, I haven't seen Scream? Jason's not in the first one. And they were like, okay, we can't redo, like there was a, it, Platinum Dunes wanted to remake Friday the 13th. New Line before that was like, oh, we'll do his crazy idea of doing a new part five. They hadn't seen the movie, so he saw it and was like, so what do we do? And it's like, okay, remake the first three. Opening, have it be Pamela Voorhees for 20 pages. She's crazy, she murders all these people, counselors come in, all these dead, and then they kill her, like the end of um, Friday the 13th. So Miss Voorhees is out in the first day. And you remake two, have him in the bag. He witnessed the murder of his mother. You do that. End of the second act, they almost kill him, like, at the end of two. And he gets the hockey mask. And the third <laughs> act, you got the hockey mask. So everybody's happy. You have this reboot. You've got the mom back. You can kind of remake this. You get the bag. You get the mask. You're <laughs> like, great. Hey, let's do that. So they were like, go to script. They brought Jonathan Liebsman, who was down the hall editing the second Texas Chainsaw Massacre prequel, the beginning. They're like, "Hey, Jonathan, you should direct this." You know, Mark. I was like, "We know Mark." High five, Jonathan. And they <laughs> started. We started remaking one, two, and three as one film, the reboot. And then Paramount was like, "Wait, you only have the rights to remake the first film." So thus began like a year and a half of litigation. Oh, and after about eight months, they were like, "You're fired." Um the next draft will be dictated by lawyers. But there were certain elements that they ended up, which is why I got credit on it. They kept like, oh, it'll be kind of a remake. They'll have the mom, they'll have the bag, they'll have the face, the mask. So they kind of did it. And then that's began Paramount New Line working together for one film. And there hasn't been one since, since everybody had First Dollar Ghost Points on it, the movie made nothing. The movie made a lot of money at the box office, but it went right out the door to so many different people because Myrner, um, the Boston guys who backed the original film um, get a chunk, get first dollar big, it's first dollar. By the time you divvy up Paramount and New Line, nobody actually made any money on the reboot even though it was one of the more successful of the film. So that's, people were always talking like the rights are why there's not a new one, the rights are this, it's like, no. The last one made nothing because how many people are contractually obligated to get paid out when a Friday the 13th movie gets made. So I'm, I'm, bu- I'm buying, sequels, man.
0: <laughs> I'm buying Sleepaway camp stock right now. I'm buying a share. <laughs> I, I need to get paid out with the next one. Oddly enough, why hasn't, I don't know what's going on with new line cinema I'm talking about like rights for iconic 80s horror movies. What's going on in new line cinema? Where, I mean, did the remake to nightmare bomb so bad that we just never are getting another one for a long time?
1: probably new line is now new line was with warner brothers they were like uh they were their own independent studio for a long time and then uh a lot of things happened and now (laughs) they've kind of been subsumed by warners and for a long time new line was making was reduced to making only two movies a year Uh, and emmerich was still kind of running it and so then that got reduced even more And New Line still exists, but they are not their own independent entity anymore at all. They are very much subsumed into Warner's and all people who were there long gone. And it's, they've got a lot of IP, but they're the head of New Line is now kind of the president of Warner Brothers. And it just, it's not a priority for them to make. They'll make more Final Destination movies because they want to compete with Conjuring franchises and they want to compete with the kind of lower-budget theatrical, the Nun, the Annabelle, the stuff like that. They want to have movies in that marketplace, but it's not going to be their business right now. Yeah. At least.
0: It's so, weird from a studio that was uh, a ha- part of the, arguably the best picture, the greatest best picture of all time with the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and now they're kind of not doing yeah. anything.
1: Well he's gone. Shea, the guy who actually rolled the dice on rings, Bob Shea, like he was great. He, he's one of those guys you don't have anymore. It seems a lot of the people who are kind of running studios and running these are create, are either MBAs from Stanford or Harvard, or they come up through the agencies and are like creations. They're a producer who's a good enough union buster, That The agencies are like, oh, we can just feed them product, and they'll make all these little movies, and they'll be profitable, because they'll have half on the streamers and half theatrical, and they'll make all these little foreign deals, output deals, where they're like, we'll have 65 movies over six years for German television, and all that money will come in. And so that's what's driving things. Bob Shea liked making movies. And that's gone a little bit like he was a riverboat gambler kind of guy who's like two movies let's make three and i mean i not to smart, shay but i remember being in new line every so often and yeah i'm not sure i can tell this story um but you go down in the parking lot there and he's had a three martini lunch and he's passed out in his convertible and you're just like ah that's the president of a studio it's just <laughs> it was so he had this huge red convertible car and he's just like he drank too much at lunch and you're like, yeah, nobody's going to get a Bob Shay meeting this afternoon. That's <laughs> that's not who's running the show anymore. Mm. Not these crazy boot-wearing lunatics like Bob Shay. Ah. So I that's don't know. You it's just it's different.
0: So, yeah. Speaking of different. You're kind of built different. We were talking off the mic and I think it's really interesting that this is a sequel podcast and we just talked about Howling 2. And then you add extra info about your relation to someone from Howling 2 before we even started Oh, recording.
1: no. I was just saying that Sybil Danning used to live in Laurel Canyon. It's It's funny because Laurel Canyon, I now live in the Valley. But when we lived in Laurel Canyon for like 10 years, it's like it took me years to realize that three doors up was the house where Robert Mitchum got busted for pot and like got arrested. You're like, oh, the mailbox is the same from that picture where he's being carted out. And you just see, there's all the Hollywood history of, oh, that's Frank Zappa's old house or that's... And then Sybil Danning, there was like a concert some guy organized in the neighborhood. And you just turn and you're like, oh, okay. So this is one of my neighbors. And it's just really neat that... And Toby Hooper used to be one of my neighbors. We used to go to the same grocery store. And I remember one Christmas, see, here's how you're related to Christmas. I remember being at Ralph's and he who's with Amanda Plummer at the time. And he's got his Christmas tree and they're so happy. And he's putting his Christmas tree in his car. And they're like, yay, it's Christmas. We have a tree and we're going. It's the fun of being a horror nerd who's tangentially somewhere involved in Hollywood because you're around everybody. But this is their job and you never know and it, who's going to walk in the door and you're just like some days it's civil danning and some days at ralph's it's toby hoover so uh,
0: he's probably buying place baked to work. beans. what he's probably buying baked beans yeah. probably too
1: yeah poor toby yeah it's sad because i used to see him at parties where he'd walk in and look around and leave oh. he, he was not he wasn't he wasn't a very social person. So he he was not a big like like Coscarelli is talking to people. Like he wasn't he wasn't that guy. So. Yeah,
0: but he made such amazing works that we all appreciate. So, yeah, yeah
1: Chainsaw We're... is so weird. It's oh, in, such, the fun house. in the, the Funhouse. In the Funhouse fun is weird too. Yeah. Yeah. So um,
0: really like man, it. dude, so do I dare ask you to rank your Friday movies? I I feel like I could possibly, but I feel like I'm cheating because I still haven't watched Jason Takes Manhattan.
1: Oh, I, I could do four is my number one, three is probably my number two, then like two, one, five. And then on the back half, I have no idea. It probably goes straight down the line, like six, seven, eight, ten <laughs> 10, because ten's great. Um, 10 is so weird. Um, I really like 10. I was in the first test screening of 10 and was like, this movie's amazing. They didn't release it for like two and a half years. Um, nine, where it's the demon worms is not my favorite. Freddy versus Jason. I didn't. Uh, the way they changed Jason, I don't. I. I, Freddy versus Jason to me is not a Friday the Thirteenth movie because they changed Jason to fit Freddy. Yeah. So it's a Nightmare on Elm Street movie that happens to have a version of Jason in it. So I don't really put it on the list. So I don't know. So I guess four, three. One and two kind of alternating, then five.
0: Uh, I think uh, for a top five, just to be safe, I would definitely go, I would say it's probably two. Then I would say, oh God, I really got to think about it. It'll go two, four. I'll put six, five, and then one. I think that's my top five. And then the rest. (laughs) Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Then the rest cuz uh, I I don't know. 3 might be a close swap with 5 and 6. Maybe pure purely numerically reasons but that's how I would probably rank it. Um but yeah. Well the end of
1: 3 is good. Like the back half yeah. of 3 is close to what they're doing in four so yeah there's a lot of good in the back half of three
0: yeah it's just same thing with one you know the 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 last 30 to 45 minutes is pretty good stuff you know i just got to get through the first um hour but uh (laughs) other than that man yeah mark dude thank you so much for being on here dude thanks Um, for having me yeah, fun to
1: talk about friday the 13th and sleazy <laughs> movies and 80s so right
0: just just be happy i didn't bring up more vinegar syndrome boutique label collecting and vintage porn right. that they have on there i think we did enough of that with doug mccambridge before <laughs> <laughs> what is doug mccam yeah. if there's a podcaster that i know that's good to do a friday the 13th movie it's probably doug mccambridge it'll be just as sleazy as assignment <laughs> <laughs> to slander yeah. a guest i just had on um but no, man, I Mark, seriously, dude, this this means a lot for you to be on this podcast. I never thought I'd have someone like you on here. Someone I used to watch on my TV, my old LG TV on my parents' house and just watch the bonus features on random Saturday mornings and see you talk about old zombie movies and talk about how you know zombie movies when Romero came out were sick and gross and they were gonna eat your flesh. Like I remember yeah. that. Like that carried me from sophomore year to community college, like just that bonus features and that kind of passion for movies. I aspire one day to be on bonus features of a sleazy, you know, <laughs> horror movie and my title good. captions, horror guru, you know, like, I. is hope that you know. what he said
1: for me? That's amazing. No, he just, no, he just, oh, no,
0: he just said you were, he just said Paul W.C. Anderson. Moron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I like to think you didn't look as good as Paul W.C. Anderson. Cause he's wearing a sleek black turtleneck. Uh, to be fair
1: <laughs> he's one of those underrated filmmakers that like i hate that someday there's going to be all these kids who are like why did everyone ignore this very strange filmmaker who is making all these movies yes. for decades and being like oh he just makes this no he's got this insane body of work <laughs> that I he's mean, just like here's what i make so.
0: sure I will say, ret- Reservoir Retribution and Final Chapter aren't as strong as Apocalypse and Extinction or Afterlife. But I will say, I was on my buddy's podcast, um, Daniels Epler's podcast, Cobwebs, where we did a, uh, we went through the whole month. We talked about um, the Fly box set from Screen Factory. We went through all the Fly movies. And there was a question asked if there's one filmmaker you could meet. And, you know, both of them were like, oh, well, Cronenberg is definitely one I would talk to. And I was like, Paul D. W. C. Anderson is someone I want to sit down and talk about movies with because he seems like someone that I would have been friends with growing up and just got lucky and got to make movies for the rest of his life. Because, yeah, I agree with you. He is one of those. He's on the he's on the tier of like Rob Zombie where he's just like he needs more work. He's underappreciated for sure. So I'm glad to hear you say that.
1: Yes. Soldiers. I mean, there's so many weird films that show off what you were saying about Ferrara not as much. Mm -hmm. But you see the personality. You see this idea in there of what he really likes. And there are so many filmmakers that are blank now. Mm -hmm. That that feel like they came out of making a a Dodge Ram commercial. And they could just as happily be making a a Chevy ad for the Super Bowl as they could be for making, I don't know, Thor movie. So it's very blank directing without the kinks of a weirdo behind the thing, you're kind of like anybody could have done this. So
0: I'd love Paul W. Sanderson to keep doing video game adaptation films. I hope he does a dead space movie. That would be awesome. Going back to your roots of event horizon. Um, Yeah.
1: Another movie chopped to pieces.
0: (laughs) uh, Yeah. There you go. We keep talking about boutique labels on here, but um, no, Mark, seriously, dude, dude, to talk to you and have you on here it, it really means a lot and uh i hope to have you back on here again i think it sounds like i i you know if you're interested reach out
1: to todd farmer uh, the writer at jason x get him on here talking friday <laughs> 13th he'll we'll tell get you-, you the opposite of everything
0: i just said <laughs> we'll get you both on here just be youtube <laughs> bickering and then be just kind of grinning on camera being like uh, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> yeah there you go <laughs> cool. all right well uh mark um you know like I said at the beginning for people who don't know you, you know you, you're a published author. If people want to reach out to you and check out your works, where can people find you at man? Uh,
1: goodreads.com <laughs> just type in Mark Wheaton and you'll see this sad, this sad person who's like, yeah, read my stupid books but yeah I, I'm on there I get message there. Twitter I guess. I, I check nothing because I just type all day and take my kids to school. And I, I'm really bad at social media, but Goodreads people find me, I guess. So.
0: Yeah, you're you're terrible. You're re, you're a real suburban dad to get a hold of, right? I
1: now. am such. I I I embrace <laughs> the weird dad. Like all the kids are like, Dad's a chiropractor, and it's like my dad's cough
0: is just like covered in horror movies, and you're like. I
1: don't
0: know. So. <laughs> well, man, like, I, you know, I appreciate you being on here. Give me the time, and I hope people check out your stuff because I think your stuff's great. Um, and for those who are listening, um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you've been enjoying this month's lineup so far with Halloween uh, Tune. Now, we just finished talking about Friday 5, a new beginning. I totally check. recommend you check, revisit that movie, um, and give us your thoughts down below. Uh, Mark, thank you again for being on here, man. And I just want to tell Thanks everyone. No problem. Like I said, I want people to say, um, I I want them to, you know, think about this in their head. If you aren't rewatching Friday the 13th part five, a new beginning, do you really care about cinema? (laughs) Anyway, we'll see you next. It's true.